I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT Today we're heading back to 1985. Phyllis Nelson was at the top of the charts with Move Closer and the FT was moving into the weekend, with this month marking the 30th anniversary of FT Weekend. Today we're going to look back at the first issue and also look forward to this weekend's content, examining the growing black market in nannies and investing in English wine. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Claire Barrett and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Josephine Cumbo and Adam Palin, plus a special studio guest, Paul Killick of Killick & Co. Now, we don't have a birthday cake, but we do have a copy of the first ever issue of the FT Weekend from May 1985, containing our first ever foray into personal finance. A fascinating artefact showing the recent history of investing. We've been struck by the passage of time. Back then, the average savings rate was a glorious 8%. Inflation was touching 6%. Now famously in negative territory, and a flat in the newly emerging Docklands districts of London could be yours for less than £70,000. A quick look on Zoopla shows us that some flats in that same development are now changing hands for £1.5 million. Now, Paul, you were big in the 1980s. Looking at this issue and drawing on your own memories, what are the pieces of investment history that you recall the most vividly? The 1980s were very much a period of Thatcher and uh, her ideals and uh, brought about the privatisations, subsequently the demutualisations. The removal of the life assurance premium relief had a big effect upon the savings market in the United Kingdom um, and she encouraged and wanted to encourage people back into the stock market. So it was a very exciting time for us. Now you worked on some of those early privatisations. Yes, indeed. I was running Quilter Goodison's private client department in the uh, in the 1980s, and we were one of the largest in, in the United Kingdom. And uh, we put forward an idea to Horgavet at the time of the British Telecom privatisation that they ought to appoint us as uh, one of the brokers to the issue. There should be a retail broker. They didn't take that idea, but they... They took a number of the ideas that we um, put forward to them, and out of that, we set up uh, share shops inside Debenhams department stores and helped people with the privatisation, completing the prospectus, and then eventually had a permanent share shop inside the Debenhams in Oxford Street. Now, that share shop, I believe that got you onto News at 10. It did, yes. About the first time, I think, a stockbroking firm had ever been shown on News at 10. Before or since, I'd wager. (laughs) Probably right, yes. (laughs) Looking back to those days, we can look at the table of interest rates in um, the 1980s, 
1985 edition of FT Money or Finance and the Family, as it, as it was called then, and, and think fondly of uh, the time when savers could enjoy such a great rate. But there were some really big problems for investors back then too, weren't there? We had a very interesting run in the markets up until about 1987, of course, and then we had the, the crash of 87, uh, which was uh, you know, a significant setback for, for investors and caught a lot of people out after a, a long bull run. I was looking at your copy of the FT of 30 years ago, and the all-share index stood at just over 600, mm. and whereas, whereas today it's about 3,800. So uh, you know, we've gone up six times um, over that period of time which probably even outdoes your flat in Docklands. But um, come uh, 87, we were really cooking. And I remember the, the FT100 share index hit a level of 2,400, up from 1,600 at the beginning of the year. So it rose 50% in that year. And then it lost it all in the space of three days, um, which was you know, a pretty uh, salutary experience for people invested into the market, and particularly those who came in a bit late, as often private investors tend to do, which is always the concern one has. Yeah, and sadly, that that trend has, has continued in subsequent booms and busts. Yes. Now, um, a year after the inaugural FT weekend hit the newsstands, the Big Bang ushered in probably the biggest change um, that the City of London um, at that time had ever seen. Was it for the better? It's an interesting question. There was good and bad that came out of Big Bang. Um, it's certainly fair to say that uh, we had to go down the route of uh, negotiated commissions. Until October 1986, the London Stock Exchange controlled the rate of commissions paid by or charged by all member firms. It was Appendix 39 of the Stock Exchange Rulebook, I remember well. Oh, your memory. But I still have a copy of the old Stock Exchange Rulebook back in my office as well. Yes, yeah, so, uh, but we were about 10 years after the Americans who'd uh, deregulated their commissions in 1975. So it was inevitable it was going to happen. Some of the things that one does um, miss, I think there was, a, the, there was a purity in the markets in those days where you were either a stock jobber or you were a stock broker, um, recognizing that a, a jobber acts as principal on mm. his own book. Um, whereas uh, a broker is acting as agent for the client. Um, and they very sensibly saw, thought there was conflicts in, in allowing a single organization to uh, to act with both hats on. Um, that went with Big Bang, and companies were allowed to be both um, principal and agent. Um, and I think that's uh, that, that hasn't served markets or investors well personally. But uh, An interesting you know, it's, it's, it's the days of the the large investment banks, which sort of brought that about and it had to happen from that perspective yes. now i've got one final question for you paul some of the adverts in our first ever edition of the ft weekend refer to things called prestel terminals <laughs> do you remember this archaic form of technology it's lost on yes, me I'm afraid. Well, it, 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 one has to remember of course that the internet was still a decade or more away um before anyway certainly it was in, in anything like common use um and it was very difficult for people to actually get up-to-date pricing on, mm. on on where shares were and uh, british telecom i think invented prestel um and it, you picked it up on your television set um, kind of like teletext uh, it was yes absolutely <laughs> right but it gave you sort of semi-live pricing. But, of course, those prices in those days, we had the floor of the stock exchange, they were collected manually by uh, pink buttons, who used to go around um, and collect the prices by hand and then go back and key them into terminals. Wow. Um, so what a great job size. Not, not entirely button. real time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks ever so much, Paul, for sharing your recollections with you. A truly fascinating um, glimpse into investing past and now for investing future still to come on the ft money show we'll be looking at how you can invest in english wine and whether climate change has made it a more attractive investment or indeed 
tipple. Before that, this week, we broke the story of fears that a growing black market in nannies could emerge after new pensions rules add to the cost of hiring a nanny, which could tempt parents, especially in London, to pay cash in hand for carers so that they can save money. Joining me in the studio is Josephine Cumbo, the FT's pensions correspondent. Joe, why are people getting worked up about the change in the pensions regulation this week? Well, what's happening is that within a few weeks, in June, parents hiring nannies and indeed uh, disabled people who are hiring carers, anyone who hires less than 50 people, will fall into a new duty to pay into a pension for their staff. Now, this has been a duty known as automatic enrolment, which mm-hmm. has laid out to the biggest companies in the country in, since 2012, but it's fanning out to the small employers uh, within weeks. So and now a, a parent yes. can count as an employer. They've yes. got to provide a pension, they've got to set one up, they've got to choose yes. a scheme and they've got to pay a contribution um, every month to that, that person, whether it's a nanny or a carer. Now you did some analysis in the FT story. Um, we've worked out that certainly within London, where the cost of everything is more expensive, um, a typical um, annual salary for, for a nanny could be anything um, over £40,000. So based on, on that, a 1% contribution plus the fees and charges of setting um, such a scheme up in the first year could cost parents an additional £500. But then when those contributions rise, um, and some people are saying that they could go up to 8% in time, well, that's speculation, that's obviously going to be um, a significant chunk. And parents, understandably, are getting quite angry about the burden that is being placed on them on on the way that childcare's taxed because they're already paying for the services out of taxed income. Yes, that's exactly right. What will happen is that under this new duty, um, parents and employers will have to pay 1% of a band of earnings and the minimum contribution will rise to 3% for employers by 2018. Now, the bills, uh, we've done some number crunching and what it will mean for someone who's hiring a nanny, for example, in, in London, it's not unusual for someone to be paying 35 to 40k a year. Mm. The contributions for someone who's uh, paying pension for for the nanny uh, from this year will be about thirty pounds a month, but by twenty eighteen, when those contributions rise, it will grow to about eighty four pounds per month. Now, people um, in in the city and in the capital already financially pressed on tight budgets might find it difficult to um, afford the extra contributions. And certainly, it's it. it's not just people in the city who use nannies. Anyone who works irregular hours, yes. whether they're a nurse or that's right, um, doctors, nurses, exactly. anyone who can't fit around childcare, the nursery, example, nurse, time nursery times, um, and have little option but to um, hire a nanny. So they'll have to take this on board. They, they'll be getting letters. If um, they've got a PAY reference with HMRC, they'll be receiving letters uh, over the next two years to alert them to their new duty. Now, many people faced with these increased costs, the nanny agencies that you've spoken to this week, um, they're fearing that they'll try and fly under the radar of the government and HMRC and either do a deal with their nanny so they just pay them in cash and avoid national insurance tax and now the pension, or they'll try and strike some kind of bargain whereby they'll put half of their um, wages through the books as PAYE and top it up in cash. 
Yes, that's that's what we're hearing, um, because the pension contributions will be an additional cost, and the cost of that will grow over the next few years. It will move up from one percent of salary to three percent, so it's an increasing cost. Plus, there are costs of setting up the scheme, and some payroll agencies w- who process the um, the nanny payments also um, levy charges. So, faced with this, these agencies are saying that some parents may choose to do- go down the riskier route of paying cash in hand. If they have a PAY reference already and they're paying their nanny through the books, they might split the payment into mm. cash in hand to reduce sort of their liability to paying their pension contributions, or they might just go completely under the radar. Now, obviously, there are huge risks to taking a, a decision like that. FT Money certainly doesn't condone um, people who, who try and do that. But we have had an enormous response um, from parents and pensions experts to this article on Twitter this week, perhaps showing that reform is urgently needed in the area of childcare. Now, one um, final question for you, Joe: When it comes to the nanny's point of view, this legislation hasn't really been thought through um, for their situation. If you're a nanny, you're looking after children hey, children grow up, you're only going to be with one employer for a couple of years at most. Yet with the current legislation, you're going to be left with, you know, 10 more pensions all separate. Yeah, their career will be littered with many different jobs and many different employers. So what happens here that all the employers are doing the right thing and opening up a pension for them, they could end up with lots of little pots being built up more than the average. I think the average um, career moves in a lifetime is about 11, but someone who's a nanny who might be in a job for six months to two years. Before moving on. Before Mm. moving on. So they'll be building up lots of little pots, which could be quite an admin headache to keep track of. There will be new legislation coming into place in a couple of years' time, 2016, to to make it easier for that pot to follow the nanny uh, wherever she goes or whoever might be working, uh, pot follows member. But it remains to be seen what the charges, the frictional costs might be imposed on having that um, pot follow you around. Well, some great points there and a story that we will continue to follow closely in the future. Thank you very much, Josephine Cumbo there, the FT's pensions correspondent. Before we pour the wine for our final item, a reminder that you can read FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday, priced at £3. Or you can read online, subject to registration, at ft.com money. And you can subscribe via tablet devices for just £99 a year. Now it's English Wine Week and the corks are popping. The industry appears to be booming. UK wine production reached a record 6.3 million bottles in 2014, many of them consumed by the Barrett-Robertson household, 42% more than in 2013. The number of acres under vines has doubled since 2007, with landowners across swathes of the southern counties turning their land over to more profitable use. And the reason for their enthusiasm is the growing reputation of English sparkling wine and a shared geology with the Champagne region, thanks to climate change. Adam Palin, welcome to the show. It may be an enticing story of the underdog, a much maligned English wine industry maturing to beat its champagne rivals, but is there money to be made? I I think there is. I think in the long term, if you had a few hundred acres and you were producing several hundred thousand bottles, if you think 6.3 million bottles produced last year, uh, say they go for £15 each, it's about £100 million a year industry. Now, as agricultural industries go in the UK, it's not cereal. Um, but uh, it, it, it's sizable now, and people around the world are paying attention to English wine, and it's, as you say, it's won awards this week and in the past, and everyone in the sector is very optimistic. 
So how seriously are people taking English wine? Well, in terms of production, there are hobbyists, but uh, over the last two decades, it's professionalised a lot. You have a couple of vineyards, or a couple of wine producers, in fact, that are listed. You have uh, Gusborne, uh, which in fact is two-thirds owned by Lord Ashcroft, the Conservative peer, but that listed on AIM in 2013. Um, that's expanding uh, very, very quickly down in Kent. And it's uh, local peer Chapel Down, who you might have heard of. Their yes. wine's stocked in Waitrose, among other places. Uh, that's listed on the ISDX Smaller Companies market. And even though it, it's, uh, it, it's relatively small, uh, you've only got revenues about £6 million last year, it's had a lot of coverage, are the shares liquid, though? Oh, <laughs> very good. Well, <laughs> they certainly look expensive. Um, you, you, they've got similar market capitalization to Adnams, um, which is uh, a very highly regarded brewer yeah. and distiller out in Suffolk, lovely Southwold, and uh, similar market value, but the revenues um, of the latter were about 10 times greater and uh, the, the profits many, many multiples more. Sure, so possibly a bit too zingy, as Jilly Goulden might say. Now, I've seen wine producers on crowdfunding websites. Is that a good idea for investors? Well, I won't get into the merits and demerits of crowdfunding per se, but needless to say, there's high risks involved. I'll take the example of Hambledon, which is uh, the UK's oldest commercial vineyard. They've almost completed a £2.7 million uh, fundraising. Got about two weeks to go. Smaller investors um, might get wine options um, and uh, larger investors, if you're willing to put in 10000 and up, are promised 8% a year. However, uh, like any mini bonds or uh, crowdfunding investments, they reflect high risks. And in this case, it's a five-year mini bond, so you, you don't get anything, maybe half a case of wine each year. Uh, for five years, it might be a case, but either way, um, you, this isn't money that you uh, that you need. So investors, in short, could be left with a nasty hangover. Exactly, and, you, and you're not covered by the financial services compensation scheme, I should add. Now, how about investing in the wine itself? Should I buy bottles of English fizz for my non-existent cellar at home? Well, lovely as that would be to uh, to, to have several bottles put by for a party. Uh, the consensus is uh, do not think of English wine as an investment. Right. Uh, sparkling wines, even the best champagnes, very few of them are good to lay down for several years. So the advice is just to drink it. Now, on that advice, what English wines do you personally recommend, Adam? Well, out of fear of incurring the wrath of FT wine expert Jancis Robinson, um, and in my very limited experience uh, as an English wine drinker, oh, come on, will be an enthusiast. I would recommend uh, the Camel Valley Rosé sparkling. It's no, made they're, down, they're down in, in Cornwall. Cornwall. Yeah, Cornwall's uh, only very large vineyard, but they, they've won several awards. Um, closer to London, uh, I'd say the most highly regarded and ones that I've enjoyed are Night Timber very large mm. vineyard down in uh, West Sussex. And uh, in East Sussex, there's Ridgeview down in Ditchling. But you know what? There's a lot of local vineyards. If you're heading out of town for the weekend, um, have a look. You might be near one. Well, some fantastic ideas there for the forthcoming bank holiday. And thanks very much, Adam. We'd love to know what you think about our 30th anniversary, the black market in nannies, or about money matters more generally. You can get in touch via email. The address is money at ft.com, or you can tweet us at ftmoney. 
And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com money. There's just time to tell you what else is in this week's edition. Terry Smith takes a bite out of McDonald's. Lucy Kellaway riffs on her first ever column in FT Money 30 years ago, naturally in column form. And there's the latest on disputed film finance schemes. And as usual, we've share tips from our sister publication, The Investor's Chronicle, and the latest director's deals. The FT Money Show will be back next week, but... For now, it's goodbye from me, from Josephine, Adam, and our special studio guest, Paul Killick. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.